Welcome to all of you in receptivity to my voice. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that have never heard any of my messages, I just briefly want you to understand how I am going to be sharing this message. There's a verse in 2 Peter chapter 4 that says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to seek to allow God to speak through us by his Holy Spirit. And so that is what I will be doing in this message. I will be seeking to allow the Spirit of God to rise up through me. I will be sensitive in a state of conscious worship that will cause me to sense what God is dropping into me and to allow that to rise forth out of my soul in his spirit, to penetrate beyond merely your mind, to touch the inner depths of your being. As Christ said, the words that I speak unto you are spirit and life. To facilitate this, what I have been doing and continue to do is to cast lots on the scripture before God, where there's an equal chance for it to fall in any particular chapter of the whole of the Bible. So then when I receive the chapter, I meditate on it for a half hour, which includes the making of notes. And immediately thereafter, in that half hour, I then begin to share trusting God to give me the message. So there's hardly any preparation. That facilitates me not trusting in my own ways, but in God to be able to move in his creative power through me. That doesn't mean there isn't teaching and so on. Or that everything is perfect by far. Not the case. Today I received Psalms chapter 27. I should add that in the casting of lots before God, it will only work if it is done with reverence before God and we are not in sin in our life and we're walking in holiness. And I can attest that it works consistently and very powerfully. Is that the only way that I allow God to speak through me? No. I also allow him to speak through me through impression independent of such seeds of potential that I make available for God to work with. Now, I will begin by reading Psalms chapter 27, which is the chapter that I received today. Psalms chapter 27. A psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. 
Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise up against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies, round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle the sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing unto the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou saidest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help, leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Thus ends the reading of Psalm 27. Before I get into sharing here, <clears throat> I do want to mention that I shared a message just the other day on uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And I only managed to share on about the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. That's as far as I got to. And I do believe there may be things from the last part of Ephesians from verses 11 to uh, the end of Ephesians that also may dovetail in with what God is seeking to say through Psalms 27 to you as an individual who in God's foreknowledge has come across this message and also to the corporate body of Christ and all others throughout the world. Now, I also received in this last period of seven days, last Saturday, the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, which I shared along with Ephesians 1 yesterday, just the other day. Not actually yesterday, Thursday, pardon me. Today is Saturday. Okay. 
Therefore, I believe it will be important for me to read the last part of Ephesians as well before I get into sharing from this passage here. And so we will turn briefly to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 11, which is where we are going now. Ephesians chapter 1. And so here we are, we're starting in verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom also in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. After doing all this reading, I just briefly want to have a sip of water. Good. Going back, we'll start with Psalms 27, but the brief commentary I will mention here on the last part of Ephesians that fits in with Psalm 27 is the desire of Paul that is expressed here in his prayer. This last part of Ephesians that we just read was Paul's supreme desire and petition in prayer for this corporate body of believers at Ephesus. And the essence of that petition is that when we really see by revelation, by enlightenment, by the eye of our heart, the riches of God's inheritance in those that are holy, the saints, and also the hope of his calling, and also the exceeding greatness of his power to us, when we catch that, And we, we 
by catching it by revelation, will enter in to the reality of that power in our lives. To the reality of a hope that will impel us beyond all discouragement and all oppression and opposition from the enemy. And a stability that will not waver because of knowing the greatness of our destiny personally in relation to the ultimate consummate purpose for which all things exist, which is God's corporate bride that he will inhabit. As it says in the word of God, you are built together as living stones for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Now, in Psalms 27, which we just read, King David describes also the dwelling place of God, his tabernacle, which also spiritually typified, and I'm sure King David saw it, for he did not see the reality of God's presence in a mere outward structure, but in the very reality of his presence in dwelling those that came together in corporate assembly. Now, what I want to share with you is now going to be more in Psalms 27. So we will go back to Psalms 27 for the time being. Psalms 27, which we've just read. And we want to just begin reading, and, and I'm going to share on these verses here, beginning at the beginning of Psalms 27. And in the first three verses, it's a Psalm of David. And David strongly emphasizes, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I mean, this is a, a, a strong affirmative that he's saying with confidence because he's experiencing the reality of it in his soul, in his inner man. The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom, of whom shall I be afraid? The secret to victory over all things including those that would seek our very life, those that would seek to torment us and torture us and do everything in their power to get us to deny God. The secret is in the strength that is in one's inner man out of the faith that we have in who God is which is from that faith also a revelation of who God is, which Paul talks about that I just mentioned in that passage. It is an understanding of a relationship with God that gave a confidence and an authority that King David expresses here as well. 
And the first thing he emphasizes is that God, Yahweh, the self-existent one, the I am that I am, which is a way of describing the very source of ultimate reality, reality being that quality that is everlasting, indestructible, and immutable, and is filled with life and void of corruption, which is the reason that it is immutable and indestructible. That quality is the integrity of God's love that is as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. It is the holiness of God that can contain, because of its total integrity, purity, of love can contain unlimited life and unlimited power without corruption or being corrupted by it in a way that is ever enlarging and into greater realms of goodness in creative expressions out of love. The Lord is my light. Light actually comes out of this quality of being that is love. I really forbear to get into an in-depth teaching as I tend to do on the being or the character of God. I simply have emphasized one aspect of the being of God's love that it is ultimately pure. That that aspect that is so pure and Integrity is the holiness of God or the defensive aspect of his love and is well symbolized by the negative and positive symbol in electricity and actually all living things are filled with negatives and positives. Cells function and everything in life functions by the flow of life between a negative and a positive and the ultimate negative and positive the, is the ultimate reality. And his being is first this integrity and purity that will not tolerate anything less than love. Love being that quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment or gratification, which as such being less would have an element of corruption in it. They wouldn't, because it would not be upholding that quality that is ultimately good. It is the foundation, this negative, for the ultimate positive, which is the symbol of the cross that is symbolized in electronics and in all negatives and positives that creation is made of. What is the cross a symbol of? It is the symbol that upon the foundation of holiness can be that which is creative, that which can be constructive, like a building being built on a foundation. It can grow in its constructiveness to contain greater and greater purpose. A house is for the purpose of comfort, of fulfillment, it has meaning, it has purpose, its purpose is habitation. And it is from the foundation of God's holiness that can contain unlimited power and life 
in a quality of goodness that is without corruption, that is expressed the ultimate of love in its integrity. And that is in the power, without violating its integrity, to be able to assure to creation that it can have destiny and purpose if it chooses to receive the mercy of God. And what is the mercy of God? It is this capacity in the being of God to be so ultimate in this purity of love that he himself can take judgment upon himself for his creation, that he could condescend and suffer more than you, a mere creature, and humble himself more than you, a mere creature. Just let that get a hold of you for a moment. The one that created this vast universe loves you that much. And so he came in the center of history and took judgment upon himself, for he only could live a perfect and holy life against all temptation in total union with God. And as such took as it were that first man, Adam, that sinned in whom we as the whole human race came from and therefore are in, and took him and nailed him through his obedience to death on the cross so that we could have the new Adam, Jesus Christ. He took judgment upon himself. His love was outpoured in his life's blood poured out for you that you might be cleansed and made white as snow and be reconciled to God by repenting, asking God for mercy, asking him to forgive you and be the Lord, the, the life center of your life. That's quite a bit to be sharing, but I want to build a foundation for those that are new. So here in this passage in Psalms 27, we have light being expressed. Now, we know that there's light when there is a negative and positive that have release. We know in the atom that there is around the nucleus of the atom electrons spinning at high speeds that form a hard shell. And the only thing that can break that hard shell is when there is the exposure first to the negative and then to the positive. Then the shell is broken. And likewise, we have the spin of our own world and all the temporal things in this world that we live for instead of for God until we come to know God. But when we come to see how empty those things are, that we are like a seed that has never sprouted, that has no meaning, that's hopeless, that's going to rot and die if it's not exposed to the light and to the elements to bring forth the latent potential of life within it. And so likewise, when we see the emptiness of our life, we only want what is ultimately trustworthy. We become hungry and open to truth, to ultimate reality. And then we realize it can only be in this quality of being. that can be transcended with the power to show mercy by being a perfect atoning sacrifice. It's not a creature that saved us. 
if it was a mere creature that died on the cross, then we would be worshiping a creature and giving glory to a creature. No, it is the capacity that was in the very being of God from the beginning of time and before the world was created. It was known that there was the power in God to forgive because there was such an ultimate purity of love that it could be transcendent for God himself to absorb judgment upon himself by becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice. It was revealed to those that were hungry for truth. From the time of Adam and Eve till now, there was one message, and that is that there is one God and that he has provided a way of mercy, of forgiveness, and that he is the only source of that forgiveness. And so I will not go on to share more on this because it becomes something I like to talk about. And I want to be in the spirit here about this message. I want to go back to this understanding of light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So do you understand now that when I'm talking about how love holds light, I am talking about the negative aspect, as it were, of this love that is, and the positive that comes out of that in God's mercy and grace. It says that Christ was full of grace and truth. The truth is the holiness of God, the integrity of his love. The grace is the manifestation of that love and creativity ultimately expressed in perfect atoning sacrifice, only possible within God himself. Jesus Christ, the word son, means expression. He is the full expression of the Father, who is the source of all things, who is in government and personage beyond time and space, and if he wasn't, he would not be God. And the Son being the full expression of God into the creation, the time and space realm, and if he was not in personage there, he would not be God. And the Holy Spirit filling all things needs to be in personage also there, where God would not be fully ruling the ultimate aspects of all existence, which is beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. But I get back to this first little statement here, the Lord is my light. King David really saw God as the source of his light, which gives life because it shows the path that will lead to life as opposed to the path that would lead to destruction. But the light issues out of the love. And he says, the Lord is my salvation my deliverance. Whom shall I fear? It is entering in to the reality of that through a life of prayer that we truly have victory over our fears. The Word of God says that perfect love casts out all fear. That is talking about an indwelling of love in our inner being that comes by the revelation of who God is. It says in Galatians twice that faith works by love. How is that? If you look up and understand the real root meaning of the word faith in both the Old and the New Testament, 
You'll find in the New Testament, it is the word pistis, which means moral persuasion. In the Old Testament, it is the word amen. That's one of the words used for it. But it has this understanding without going into all the in-depth on this. It has the understanding of being convinced in who God is to the degree that no matter what circumstances you're in, you continue to maintain the integrity in your heart of no doubt, of, tr of perceiving God as ultimately trustworthy. So you have also an understanding of moral persuasion in who God is. In both the Old and New Testament, this is the true understanding of faith. This, this concept of people saying, oh, if you, you just work yourself up more and believe that you can believe and believe and believe, is a counterfeit faith. It's what's called a feigned faith. But in the King James, in the New Testament, it exhorts us to have an unfeigned faith. An unfeigned faith has no confidence in ourselves. It is a confidence in who God is that comes out of spending quality time with God, seeking him, so that there is an inner strengthening in our inner man of faith. For example, it says in Jude 24, building up yourself in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. So what builds up our faith is by spending quality time praying in the Spirit. Now I could get into explaining a lot about what it means to be praying in the Spirit. It is a way of releasing the very honest inner depths of who we are before God. And being able to release it fully involves something that you can't put into words. It says, for example, in Romans, that the Spirit makes groanings that cannot be uttered. Because it's beyond words sometimes what we're feeling within us. How do you put them in mere words of English? Those words are not effective vehicles always to carry the feelings that are within our being. And so there needs to be a far greater release of expression from our soul that cannot be contained in such vehicles. And so as a result, there is a hymn that expresses this well. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the wonders of his grace. It is a fact. It is an experience that people enter into where when they have a deep turning in their heart, they catch a revelation of who God is in his beauty and in his glory that they cannot put in words. And so they burst forth in words that are another tongue, because only that way is there the vehicle to draw out of the being of our soul in the Spirit of God that is dwelling within us, a full expression of affection to God and of love.
So King David expresses a relationship with God. Now, I had mentioned earlier that in Galatians it says faith works, works by love. How is that? We build up ourselves through prayer, and it builds up our faith. How does that happen? When we begin to gaze upon God in his holiness, in the integrity of his love, by just being in utter awe of who he is in his holiness, first, when we do that, all of our own presumptuous words and self-initiation cease. We hold back our own tendencies to be presumptuous because we're in such awe of who God is when we begin to really turn with our heart and focus the eye of our heart on gazing on who God is in his holiness, realizing that we deserved hell and judgment in the light of who God is because of our rebellion and independence from God. And then, out of that, we can really see how great God's mercy is to us. And in seeing how great God's mercy to us personally is, we begin to see how great his love is to us. Because within mercy there is contained the favor of God. The Hebrew word for mercy contains the understanding of not just mercy that you, the deserved judgment, have been spared, but that you've also been brought into the place of favor before God because you've repented and cried out unto God to receive his mercy. In the New Testament, the understanding is, in the word grace, that it contains also mercy. So it's just the same meaning, basically, in a different way. In the New Testament, the two words that are used are truth and grace. In the Old Testament, the two words that are used are holiness and mercy. Or sometimes it can be truth and mercy basically very similar as far as truth and holiness, the truth of God, the holiness of God, truth of who God is, except with an emphasis on the integrity of his being that requires judgment. Okay. So when you see the greatness of God's love to you personally, you are perceiving at that point what is ultimately trustworthy. Because it doesn't violate its integrity, integrity and holiness. But if that was all God's love was, we could not trust him, for we could not find mercy. And if God could not provide for his creation, destiny, and purpose, it would imply he is imperfect. <clears throat> the fear of God is a choice to recognize God for who he really is, which is that quality of being that is ultimately trustworthy, which is only possible in these two aspects of love in their ultimate perfection. First, the holiness of God, and out of which issues the mercy and favor of God or the grace of God. First, the truth of God, and out of which issues the grace of God. And so this verse becomes a reality for once you've had the revelation of God's love, it says that perfect love casts out fear. And so out of that, 
comes forth a faith response because what is faith going to trust in? Not a perception of what is less than ultimately trustworthy. The moment Eve doubted and bought into the doubt that Lucifer put in her mind, she lost the fear of God because she chose not to recognize God as ultimately trustworthy, but to buy into doubt. The fear of God is that choice from the inner depths of our being that recognizes God as ultimately trustworthy because of the revelation of the fullness of his love, both in its integrity and in its grace. So out of this comes a reciprocating relationship of faith that is always working by love, that involves a hunger to seek God, to wait on God. Now, in this psalm, it emphasizes waiting on God. This is the real theme verse of this psalm. It is in verse 14, the last verse. It says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So I want to explain the meaning of this word wait in its fullness, what it means to wait on God, for it is the secret of entering into what Paul the Apostle talked about in Ephesians, of them having the revelation of the hope of his calling, of the inheritance of God's in the saints, and of the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe that power that raised Christ from the dead, both individually and corporately in the body of Christ onto ultimate purpose, which is this corporate bride described in Ephesians, which God will fill in a fullness that will cause his authority to come in them so that they will conquer all things, including death itself with him, and rule and reign throughout the universe forever and ever without end, ever enlarging in creative expressions of fulfillment, a fulfillment that are going on forever. Now, There is no ultimate meaning beyond that. Everything in creation is filled with male and female counterparts that speak of this ultimate marriage, which we have individually when we enter into a true conversion experience with God. How does that come? Before I get into explaining some of the things here on the word wait, it comes by the reciprocation in us of the negative aspect that I mentioned and the positive aspect, they're both very, they're actually all just a big plus, but the plus is made out of the integrity of God's love, the mercy. But this is something that uh, when we see causes in us also a negative and positive. The negative aspect is the awareness of our nothingness apart from God. The positive aspect is the awareness that God is our very life source that reciprocates the being of God in his holiness and in his mercy, this ultimate negative and positive of the very, of the I am that I am, the ultimate reality of all things. So there is this reciprocation that happens within our being, of faith working by love. 
You see, it defines the fear of God in Proverbs. And one of the definitions goes this way. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. So in there we have an awareness of apart from God, there being destructibility and torment because of being cut off from the source of harmony and life. And the awareness of God as the ultimate source of life of fulfillment. It is the recognition of God in these two aspects that is what it means to fear God and to grow in the fear of God. It comes through waiting on God. And so I get back to this word on wait. And I want to share that now and give you an understanding of this word. For it is the secret that is so important. First of all, I want you to understand that this word is pronounced kava. Kavwa. Kavwa. Okay? It means to bind together. And figuratively, it means to expect. That's the basic definition you'll find in a Strong's Concordance. But I want to go into the meaning of this word in a lot more of its etymological sources. And so there's a dictionary known as the AHLB, that is called the American Hebrew, you know, it's, pardon me, it's called the Ancient Hebrew Lexicon, probably Biblical or Bible, I don't know, but its abbreviation is definitely the AHLB, which you can get free with the free software, the word software. Now, this has the ancient Hebrew letters that go back to between 1500 BC and earlier, and they are pictures. And in those pictures, there's way more meaning of what the original Hebrew word wait means. So first I want to point out what the true the two root words are here. The first letter is a symbol of the sunset, which is a circle with a line through it, through the middle of it, a horizontal line through the middle of it. This particular word basically means the following. It means to condense, it means circle, and it means time and is a picture of the sun at its horizon. That's the first letter in the letter wait, which has the understanding of spending time and learning to circle or to focus around God instead of the spin around our own life. Because its meaning is circle. It's, it also means to condense. So there's a a condensing that happens or a distilling that happens within our being as we circle around God. And it has the understanding of time. So as we circle around God, we're spending quality time. We're getting out of the spin of our own circle into spinning around God, the ultimate reality, the source of all life. Now, the next letter in the word wait, in its very root meaning, is the picture of a man with his hands raised up as if to show that he is strong or as if to praise God. 
And the meaning of that symbolic letter in the Hebrew is look, reveal, breathe inside. It has the understanding of seeing of the man looking beautiful and also looking at something beautiful and of sighing or just being in utter awe of what he is looking at. It's look in the sense, look at me, look at how strong I am, or look at how beautiful I am. It has the understanding of us rising up, putting our hands up, and looking at God. Outwardly, that's the expression, but inwardly, that's what our soul is doing. It is initiating an awareness of who God is in his awe and in his beauty. Now, having given you that root understanding, which is the actual root meaning of the word weight, there are various words related to this word weight because from that root there comes other ones. There's some that are unknown here, and I won't go into that. Um, one is collect. Collect has another letter after the sunset, which is a tent peg. So it's just simply emphasizing, peg down this focus around God. So it's just a, a, a stronger word for the word weight. So the word weight also has the understanding of something being collected. It, it has the understanding of being bound together. Now, one of the things that really illustrates this word weight is a rope. A rope being twined together to become strong. So our identity in God becomes strong as we revolve around him, as the, and, which is symbolized in the twining of the rope. This twining of the rope forms a strong bond in relationship and intimacy with God. So that our identity is no longer in the things of this world, but in our relationship with God. So that obviously when there's that reciprocation of faith working by love that causes love to grow in us, it casts out all fear. Because what is love? It is a consciousness of completeness in God. Now, when there's a consciousness of completeness in God, there can be no fear, because fear is a consciousness of loss. That is basically what causes fear. We are aware of loss to ourself, and we're focused on that. And so out of that comes uptightness. That's why it says in 1 John, when it says this, it says, perfect love casts out fear. And then it says, because fear has torment, and he that fears has not been made perfect in love. So fear carries torment, or what is uptightness, or a static that is a bad vibration in our being that causes tension, that causes us to be in stress and causes physical damage to our body as well. So the secret to overcoming this is to wait on God, be intertwined with God. Now the word here that describes this word wait 
as collection. That's another word that has the understanding of weight in it. It is used as for a word like waiting. It has the understanding of being held back or waiting for something. Um, this I already explained a bit, that we shouldn't be presumptuous before God. For example, in Ecclesiastes, it says that we, when we come before God, it says, when thou comest to the house of God, be more ready to hear than to speak, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. In other words, we need to cease from all that. When we begin to see God for who he is and we realize whose presence we're in, do you think we're going to behave in a trivial, light, presumptuous way? That would bring the utter judgment of God upon us. When you really love someone, they're too precious. For you to treat them as common, you treat them with utter preciousness and sensitivity. And so this is the understanding also in the word weight. It is a collection of water, like a pool or a pond or a sea or horses coming together. And that word all actually uses the first letter as being the letter Mayim, which is a picture of water, like three little, 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 it's kind of little ridges. It's a, it's a picture of water. And then the sun with, at the horizon, and then the tent peg, and then the man standing up there. That is the meaning of that word collection. But it contains the root, which is this word weight and is used for words like word waiting. And I, I know I can go on. It, it also is the word used for ditch, a place for collecting water. Again, you got the Mayim and then the sunset, then the tent peg, and then the man standing with his hands raised up. So we see God as our life source as we dwell on him and we peg that down. And then we rise up and see the beauty of God. And in Psalms 27 here, this is what David describes as the secret to his victory over his enemies and over all things, really. So he says, and I will go down here now, he says, though in hell should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. And I'm not going to go on with every verse here. I'm going to go on to this last part of verse 3 that says, Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. Why? And here's the secret. In verse 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. One thing have I desired of the Lord. So in verse um, 1 to 3 we saw that it was it should be our delight in God as our salvation, light and life that brings fearlessness before the face of our enemies who seek to destroy us. But now what I just read 
Basically, I said this, it is when our desire is only to be with the Lord and not for other things of this world. And we are thus determined to seek after that alone, that we can have confidence of God's overshadowing protection, deliverance, and victory over our life, in our life, over our enemies in all things. Verses four to five, which I just read. The thing I want to emphasize here is that King David desired to behold the beauty of the Lord. He recognized the holiness of God. And I clearly have shown you that it is holiness that can only contain life, unlimited life and power. Of course, that also involves mercy, but holiness. Many people have a wrong perception of God and his holiness. They don't recognize that out of holiness issues wholeness because it is holiness that contains life without corruption that can be fully constructive and ever enlarging unto greater fulfillment. Only that quality, the integrity of God's love, can contain that. So out of holiness issues wholeness. And out of wholeness issues this beauty that King David is talking about. And the beauty manifests the glory of God. When we begin to recognize the holiness of God and see the goodness that is behind the holiness of God, how many people become offended that God has allowed so much suffering? The second law of thermodynamics, which is a well-established law in the observable universe of science, says this, that anything left on its own will always go in a direction of greater and greater disorder on to complete chaos. So God in his holiness, if we choose, to not fear God and to not recognize God as ultimately trustworthy in his holiness and his mercy, then what happens? We see all the suffering around us and we become offended that God's allowed all those things and we blame it on God. We begin to look at God. Maybe we aren't even willing to admit that with our mouth, but it's in our heart. There's offense. And we begin to become distant from God and to become alienated. We look at him as an enigma, someone that we can't understand, that's demanding. He's holy, but we don't see that he's good. Because we become offended at the consequences of holiness, God cannot condone the slightest that is contrary to his love. It must be cut off. And when it is cut off, there is suffering because there is the principle of corruption. But it is not God that is the, to blame for it. He created us not as robots, but as beings that have the capacity of love, which is only possible if we are created with our own free will. That is, are the source of our own action, are the creators of our own destiny, are totally free 
in self-origination of choice, of expression, and so on. And God is calling us as his people to have such a fear of God that we don't buy into such doubt. Of the, all the things we see around us, for in that doubt then comes a misperception of God that is idolatrous, that results and is the source of all other religions. That look at man as the center of his own salvation, of what man can do. That look at the created as the source instead of the creator as the source, the life source. And there's so many deceptive belief systems like that. I just want to emphasize here the desire to meet with God, to have a hunger to know an inner satisfaction in our being that we'll never find by justifying our own destinies and independence from God through false beliefs that come out of our offense at the holiness of God. Like the prodigal son, we will be trying to fill the void within our being, which is like a black hole in outer space that is, can never be satisfied. God created our being to only find satisfaction in what is ultimately real, which is him. For reality is that which is void of, to of all corruption and is totally filled with life. And so therein is wholeness. Therein is utter satisfaction. So in holiness, when we learn to fear God and to obey him and to keep his commandments of living a holy life before him, which is not through our own strength, but through learning to focus on who he is and the grace that issues from him to give us strength in our weakness. Our being becomes deposited. There is a condensation, as I mentioned, through the waiting for one of the words, for the word waiting is condense. That is the name of the first letter, one of the meanings of the first letter, which is the sun with the horizontal line through it has the understanding of condense, circle, and time. And so, we begin to delight to behold the beauty that is issuing out of the holiness of God due to the wholeness therefrom. And King David even saw that this involved God's tabernacle. And I'm going to go on here because there's not much time to go through everything here. And I want to read the next verse. So King, King David has only one desire. He doesn't desire anything more in this world because he's found it never, that it's a lying vanity, as it says in Jonah, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. King David has come to a place out of waiting on God, spending time with him, where his identity is so become in God that the temporal things that would lie to us and say that they can fulfill our lives no, how, no longer can attach to him. Because he's had a revelation of the truth that set him free from that. There's a scripture that says, 
If you continue in my word, then shall you know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It is a matter of continuance, a matter of continuance in waiting on God, of continuance through every trial to trust God that he can bring resurrection life out of it, that will unravel the deceptions of what we're alive to that is a lying vanity that can manipulate our lives. Yes, as a young man, I always wanted a wife. I haven't got one, and I'm 65. I've been single all my life. Do I still want a wife? Yes, but it no longer is something that is an anxiety because I've come to the place where I sense such a marriage to God that I delight in my relationship with him. I still want a wife and to enjoy the natural fulfillment of that, but it's not a driving thing anymore. I am happy if God doesn't give me a wife, but I desire one to work with in ministry and also to enjoy. So the Lord is good and he can provide those things. But I really want to emphasize here that our desire becomes single before God. When we wait on God and have the revelation of who God is to us personally. As King David said, whom have I in heaven but earth? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And whom do I desire on earth but thee? He truly entered into a deep, intimate relationship with God that set him free. That revelation of the truth through perseverance brought him into a relationship where he knew victory over all things, including the enemies that were at his very heels about to kill him. He had no fear. He knew God's presence was there like a pavilion to protect him, to hide him. And so he even prophesies before his enemies and before they're destroyed. And he says this in verse 6, And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices, sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. So when we really have a relationship with God, even before our trials, before our enemies, we can even begin to prophesy with thankfulness to their demise or the demise of circumstances pitted against us with sacrifices of joy in the house of God. The secret is entering in to being twined into identity with God like a rope through spending that time of curbing back our own self-initiations out of entering into the awareness and the awe of who God is, which is a choosing to fear God out of which springs forth genuine conversion and its ongoing process in the way that it was initiated. As it says in the word of God, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in it. We received God into our lives when we cried out from the depths of our heart and truly saw our need of God. And we said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cleanse me of all my sin through the blood of the very expression of yourself, your son, Jesus Christ. And forgive me of all my sins. And when we cry and there's that true breaking and rending of the veil in our heart, we have revelation of who God is. And so, in this psalm, 
That is the secret. And I'm going to go on here and go to the uh, next section, 7, verse 7 to 10a. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou saidest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. In this part here, in the first part of this section, King David has a deep cry in his heart that comes out with a cry that is in his voice audibly. It says in the word of God that the Lord is rich unto them that call upon him. It says in Genesis that in those days, in the days of Enoch, men began to call upon the Lord. God wants a cry from the depths of our heart that cries out unto him as King David did here with the awareness of his need of the mercy of God because he saw he deserved and was worthy of the judgment of God. And he mentions this in this verse right here by, by crying out for mercy. And he goes on and he repeats it again and he says, hide not thy face from me. In verse 9, put not thy servant away in anger. See, he's aware that God can be angry. People that do not believe God can be angry with them because of sin in their lives have a distorted view of God. It says in Isaiah, God is a God of judgment. And he will judge us and he will chasten us that are his children too. But if we can just come before him out of the fear of God and recognize that this holiness is good, and not allow ourselves to be overwhelmed with the fear that brings a distortion of who God is, like Cain had. If we can recognize that his judgments are just towards us in his anger, but that his mercy is greater and rejoices against that judgment, we can enter in to a true intimacy with God. But if we fail to recognize the holiness of God to us personally, even in that we can receive his anger and his judgment, if we rebel and sin against him in our heart and refuse his reproof and his correction are not open to it and want to go our own willful way or deceive ourselves into a counterfeit conversion or a counterfeit spirituality, Then God continues to allow his judgment until we are broken and come to the end of these deceptions. Counterfeit spirituality comes out of a failure to recognize that to us personally, God will deal with us in righteousness, but in mercy. But we must recognize that we have the potential to receive his anger, if we are rebellious towards him. But not, we should never have the view that that anger is coming out of a dictatorial creator, but rather a creator that is filled with such beauty for out of holiness issues wholeness, and out of wholeness issues beauty, and out of beauty issues glory. 
And that is what God will deposit in our lives when we look at the suffering around us and in our own lives and are willing to put it in his hand and say, God, I'm willing to accept your dealings in my life and I repent and I believe in your power to deliver me now as I have repented so that the enemy has no ground to be attached to my life with his curses. And God also can be the very source of that judgment as well without the enemy. Because he broke out as a blazing fire of judgment on Israel when they rebelled against him. Paul the Apostle said, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And we also need to persuade ourselves, knowing the terror of God, that we would work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, that God may work within us to will and to do of his own good pleasure. King David goes on, and he says, The last thing I want here, in essence, he's saying, is for God to forsake me. And he cries out, and he says, God, I want you more than anything in my life. That's in essence what he says. He says, hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. He reminds himself that in the past, God has helped him. So that now, even now, he believes that God's mercy will prevail over anger in his life from the Lord. He says, leave me not, neither forsake me. O God of my salvation. And then he says this, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. So King David recognizes that because of his relationship with God, he's receiving persecution from his very dearest and closest friends. But that God will make up for all of that persecution and that painful loss. And he goes on and he has such a desire for the glory of God and that his enemies would not blaspheme the name of God, that he says, teach me thy way, O Lord. Lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I had fainted unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Yes. We need to believe to see God's goodness in this present life that he will break through in our lives personally if we persevere by waiting on him. If we persevere by having a moral persuasion as is talked here about, believing to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We can have moral persuasion in who God is in relation to our lives that he will break through even in our lives in this present world with his goodness. If we persevere through the trials that unravel the deceptions that hold us back from this relationship that God's wanting us to enter into with him. The word of God says, after you have suffered a while, he will strengthen, establish, and settle you. The issue is, will we persevere to know the truth that the truth might set us free? The issue to entering into the reality of an intimate relationship of truth with God is waiting on God, as this last verse says. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. 
Thank you for listening to this message, which has been almost an hour and 15 minutes long. Look forward to ministering again onto the glory and praise of God in your life.